Greetings from American Exception. I'm Aaron Good, and today I am talking with Monica Wiesack about her new book, America's Last President, What the World Lost When It Lost John F. Kennedy. You will hear more about this book in just a moment, but I would like to say here at the start that I recommend this book. I listened to the audiobook version and enjoyed it a lot, even being very much steeped in this material as I am. So do check out the show notes for links to the book, and I hope that you enjoy this discussion. Monica Wiesack, it's great to have you here. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to chat with you. I'm excited to have you here because I just finished your book, and uh, I thought that you did a great job on this, and um, it's really kind of a heartening book uh, to, to read, and I, I really admire all that, the time and effort that you put into this. I, I, I have to ask, what made you interested in studying the presidency of John F. Kennedy? Um, so it was a very, very long and slow process for me. So I actually had quite a curiosity in him when I was a little kid. I saw his um, civil rights speech. And for me as a little kid, you know, he came off as very compassionate, sincere, you know, understanding, you know, someone to look up to as a little kid. But then in the press and the news, you know, I heard a lot of stories about, you know, he's making deals with the mob you know, he's taking drugs, he's trying to kill Castro, he's just sleeping around and, you know, all these negative stories. And when you're a little kid, everything is black and white, you're either good or you're bad. And, you know, there's no complexity in human beings. And so I was really confused as to who he was as a kid. I couldn't reconcile that dichotomy. Um, but I was interested, you know, like it piqued my curiosity. And then when I was 10 or 12, I went to see the film JFK, and I didn't have a clue what the film was about. I just kept hearing the word JFK on TV. And um, I assumed Kevin Costner was JFK. And I went to the theater. And in like five minutes, I'm like, wait a minute, Kevin Costner is not JFK. I was like, this film is not about JFK. And, and I was just so bummed out at the theater because I like I really wanted to learn J about JFK. And I didn't really have any interest at that point in the assassination. I think I've always been more interested in him than the assassination. Um, but it was a distant interest. I wasn't reading books or anything. And then as I got older, I kind of, things just started not to make sense to me about American leadership, especially when the Iraq war hit. I think that was a massive eye opener for me because I was like, what the F is going on? You know, like, why are we invading Iraq? Like, why is everybody cheering on like the destruction of another country that hasn't done anything to us, right? And I never believed in the weapons of mass destruction because it's just, Obviously, I didn't know, but it just seemed so propagandistic to me that I was just so turned off by it because I'm turned off by propaganda in general. Um, so, you know, I just started becoming more and more kind of skeptical, I guess, or questioning. And in the back of my mind, I was like, how do I understand, you know, why America is the way it is or why our society is the way it is? And so it kind of occurred to me that maybe studying Kennedy is a good way to do that because he's the one that got assassinated. So in my mind, I was like, well, what was he doing? You know, why did they get rid of him? Why was he a threat? So those kinds of kind of thoughts kept crossing my mind, but it was still a slow process. Cause I kind of, I had kind of heard vaguely, oh, maybe it's because of Vietnam. And I figured, oh, that's probably it. And so I started reading a little bit here and there. And, and then I just started 
running into more and more stuff. And it's like, the further I went down the rabbit hole, it's like the faster I slid down it, you know, like the more I learned about him, the more I wanted to learn about him. And then it got to a point where I'm like, holy crap, I, you know, I really know a lot. Maybe I should actually write about it and document it so that other people can pick it up more quickly and just, you know, get it quickly out of one book rather than going deep down the rabbit hole like I did. That's pretty uh, uncanny, really, because my experiences are are similar. I also I saw JFK in the theater when I was a little bit older than you, like maybe uh-huh. I'm, I'm a couple years older than you, but I saw it in the theater and um, I I knew what I knew the story. I understood that it was about the assassination because I think I'd read something about it in like Newsweek or something. Mm-hmm. And um, I, but I I wasn't an expert on it. I didn't know very much about the assassination, but I knew my parents had said my, who, who aren't my dad, especially who isn't super political. Even he explained that uh, to me at an early age that this was not re- uh, he was shot by this guy, but then the guy said he didn't do it. And then he gets killed a couple of days later and nobody really yeah. believes it. You know, <laughs> even my dad said that who's like a, yeah. you know, a country dude from West Virginia, uh, and works for a you know, coal company and so on. Not especially political, not Che Guevara or anything like yeah. that. And he, he, he said something similar. And so I, I always was skeptical about that. And then I saw the movie and I thought, well, there's no way Oswald did this. And that was just sort of in the back of my head. And then also for me, the, the Iraq war was something where, because if, if you're, we, we, you and I both grew up and we've never had the whole political system in the U S has been a clown show for all of our yes. lives. The, it, even when it wasn't, it, you learn more in retrospect that actually it was the nineties, which were like yes. or Clinton. You actually realize if you put that in historical context, it's the, the U S was still number one, doing a lot of shady things below the board, like in, in the, in central Asia, Balkans and so on. And economically, but then, you know, Reagan was, was kind of, was ridiculous before that. Clinton, those years were prosperous, but an illusion. And then Bush was just an outright criminal presidency. Yeah. And, and Obama didn't change anything. When Obama didn't change anything, that really, because I worked for him, and that really made me think, whoa, this system is quite different. I mean, was that, this, was that your feeling when, during the Obama years as well? Were you sort of holding out hope he would change something yeah. after Bush? I was, I was, um... I never really liked him that much because there was a certain arrogance there that kind of turned me off. But I was hopeful, like, because Bush was just so awful that I just thought, you know, this it will improve, right? But yeah, now I kind of see it doesn't really matter, you know? And that's what made me want to study Kennedy because I'm like, it is a clown show. It is like professional wrestling. It's just like watching these people battle it out, but it doesn't really matter who wins. You know, it's it's the same thing continues. And that's what I was trying to understand. I was like, was America always this way? Or, you know, did we have real presidents once? Or did we have real leadership once that you could actually look up to? And that was actually, you know, making their own decisions. And so that's what I was curious to find out in studying Kennedy. There's a lot there going on in that short amount of time, because like you, I've read, I, I know that I have to have read a lot of the same books that you've read over the years. Uh, so I was familiar with much of the material in your book. Yeah. The way you assemble it, I think, is really great. And you really do a service to everybody that wants to learn about this in one uh, chunk. But uh, it, 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 it's what parts of his presidency were the most surprising to you as you looked into it? I think as you just looked into it as a whole. Yeah. So I still had more or less bought into the mainstream image of him. Like I still thought he was probably 
pretty surface level, pretty shallow. You know, maybe he was a little anti-war, but, you know, he was a pretty superficial guy. And so I think what really shocked me is like just how much depth he had. You know, like I couldn't believe the amount of issues he was involved in, um, you know, from how much he cared about the economy, how much he cared about, you know, the average life of the average American, how much thought he gave to like third world nationalism, all these things. I was like completely shocked by it. I had no clue about any of it. And I think I was blown away by how much of a hard worker he was, you know, how involved he was in every issue. Like all of it was just like shocking to me, you know, because I thought of presidents as puppets more or less, you know, like my whole life, I've just kind of felt that. And I was just kind of blown away that he, that America once had a real president. And I think that's just what really shocked me. Um, and also how ideologically aligned I was with him. Like I had no idea that I was so ideologically aligned with him in terms of what his views were. Um, you know, cause there is no politician today that I align with. Like I don't align with the Democrats or the Republicans or like any of it. Like there's no politician that I connect with remotely connect with and that I haven't my whole life. So I was just shocked that I actually, that there was a leader that I really connected with ideologically. Um, and so that I think really blew me away as well. Bernie Sanders will say good things about economic issues and so on, but he's, it's, it's interesting to note that he is on foreign policy, not as progressive as Kennedy was. And Kennedy was there at the height of the cold war. I mean, that is I yeah. think, pretty amazing. Let's get into some specific policy areas here. Uh, how did JFK pursue different economic policies domestically and internationally? Because okay. this is obviously a big part of the story. Yeah. So I think he believed very much in decentralized power. So he said in a speech, he doesn't want economic power to be in the hands of the government, nor in the hands of a few private individuals. So he wanted economic power to be dispersed. So he was definitely a free market guy but he wanted checks and balances on that free market activity. So he didn't want just unfiltered and unabated capitalism where people could just do, you know, these companies can grow into these massive monopolies and just do whatever around the globe, right? So he very much believed in antitrust laws. He very much believed in an activist government. So he made proposals where you know, he could reduce taxes during um, a recession, things like that. So even though he didn't want economic power within the government, he still wanted the government to have some power to steer the economy in a direction that would benefit the masses, you know, and being able to do tax cuts and things like that, you know, um, during recessions, I think, you know, he really believed in. And he, you know, wanted small businesses to grow. He supported small banks, which again fits to the decentralized theme and not having centralized economic power. Um, you know, he believed in production versus speculation, you know, so he did like his investment tax credit where you would get a tax credit for purchasing new equipment to actually produce goods, you know, rather than just to speculate on the market or whatever. Um, and he just did a lot of things to help I think the needier sectors of society. So he did like the area redevelopment acts, you know, to help invest in areas where industries were becoming obsolete. You know, he did like manpower development and training act and things like that. You know, he increased minimum wage, increased social security, he increased unemployment. So he definitely wanted people to have a safety net. Um, 
and wanted them to have opportunities. You know, he definitely very much wanted like universal employment. You know, I don't think he was a fan of welfare, but he wanted universal employment opportunities. So, you know, he said anyone who can't find a job deserves the attention of the U.S. government, you know, so he he definitely didn't believe in just leaving people to their own. You know, he thought as a society, we should help each other and we should make sure everyone has opportunity. Um, so he was like a weird mix of like libertarian and socialist. And, you know, he's a, and I, and I get it because I really connect with him ideologically. So he's kind of all over the place, but I, I get where he's at, if that makes sense. Um, and in terms of internationally, you know, I think he wanted to give third world countries independence, you know. I think he wanted them to become self-sufficient and develop their own industries and not just be, you know, exporters to the U.S. and whatnot. Um, and he didn't want to put too many strings on the aid we gave them, um, you know, let them make their own decisions. And, you know, that our, our aid isn't just like a, a method of control necessarily. I mean, obviously, he wanted them to treat the U.S. well, so he was buying them off to an extent, but it wasn't like total control, if that makes sense. Right. This, uh, I think, is um, it, one issue that I've found where you can start to get a handle on what he was seeking to accomplish internationally is the issue of the gold deficit th for the yeah. U.S. That the U.S. was losing gold all of the time under Eisenhower. And Kennedy really took dr kind of drastic steps to rein that in. I mean, he, he actually had press conferences on the balance of payments question. Yeah, like every press conference. I, and I actually debated whether to put that in my book, but I'm like, I don't know if people are going to understand that because it took me a while to understand what the hell he was talking about. But he talked about it at like every single press conference, the balance of payments. Yeah. yeah. And he, he actually, he brought it into the, he brought it into surplus for the first time, like right very close to when yeah. he died. No, like he, it was actually working. And I think that that the running, being able to run those deficits was uh, something that benefited Wall Street interests and so on because it allowed them to invest more and, and snatch up really the valuable resources yeah. in other countries. Uh, but it was to the detriment of the U.S. Uh, position financially because it was actually leading to a, a gold drain yeah. in the Treasury. And so by it, this is, uh, I think, a key issue uh, in the way that he handled this. It also was a part of what he had said to the Joint Chiefs and everybody else in November of 1961. He said... Um, he denied the requests for ground troops in Vietnam in part because of the balance of payments issue. Yeah. So that's another place where it's like you can see that what he was he was really fixated on this issue and it was really important and it was a pillar of what the more villainous forces in the in the US system were uh how they were able of their power really. They it was a huge part of their power to be able to abuse that system. They abuse it with to the point that they actually wreck it under Johnson, and then they have to change the whole financial system. But it, that in, it ends up being making the U.S. even more powerful and rich because they don't have to worry about the gold anymore after 1971. So this was this is another area where Ke what Kennedy was doing was it doesn't seem like it would be in and of itself revolutionary, and maybe it wasn't exactly, but it was very threatening because of what the the what he was trying to do with a, a world that was less dominated by the U.S. and more the third world countries would be more autonomous, 
uh, that's not what they wanted. They wanted uh -huh. capital to be able to go anywhere capital wanted to go. And they wanted unlimited money to be able to invest and not have to worry about the gold or anything else or deficits. And Kennedy didn't had a different idea. And that was threatening. Yeah. And he, even with this taxation and stuff, you know, he didn't want U.S. businesses overseas and like getting tax breaks for that and all of that. And I think and it goes back to his like idea, not his desire to have decentralized policies. You know what I mean? So he very much wanted third world independence and very much wanted decentralized economic power across the globe, you know, and I think because he understood if you centralize power, that is not good for humanity at all, right? Because then all decisions are made top down and those decisions are not made for the benefit of humanity. And so he understood that. So while he was staunchly American and did everything to protect America, he also understood that what was best for the average American was to have a decentralized system of power and not to live under a massive empire. I think he understood that well. And they just had very different, they had very yes. different plans. Um, I, I see Kennedy as being uh, in line with Henry Wallace, um, uh, who was removed yeah. by similar forces, you know, um, a standard oil guy named Pauly uh, staged a coup at the convention in 1944 to, and they basically keep Wallace from being vice president. And he was, he, his famous speech was, um, Century of the Common Man, uh, which was a, a response to Henry Luce and his American Century uh, essay in Life magazine, which was more or less a call for U.S. empire. Um, and Wallace wanted something that was very similar to what I think Kennedy was trying to advocate for. And they got rid of him, which to me, it just like what I have been shocked by. Uh, is learning, and I, I've put this in the my my dissertation in the, in the book, is the extent to which the U.S. empire was planned so, uh, you know, deliberately by these Wall Street forces. I mean, they 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 set out to plan everything in World War II with the War and Peace Studies Project at the Council on Foreign Relations, and they remove Wallace, who was an impediment to it. They have the media people in place like Loose, you know, Time, Life, Fortune all these establishment guys and they just, they, they create the CIA to be their secret police, you know, in 1947. And then the, the empire is off, but the empire doesn't say we're an empire. It says communism is so, so bad. Communism yeah. is a threat to everyone. And it gave them this excuse to basically wage war on the whole world, but to, to pat, to, to market it with the best marketing in the world, the world's best yeah. PR publicists and flax and propagandists as the, a defense of freedom. Yeah. Uh, and they, and they, they haven't, they, that's, it's really the same thing we have going on today. It's like, there's a straight line from that to today and why we can't move anything in a positive direction. Yeah. And it's crazy to think about, you know, if like Wallace and RFK and JFK and all these people had remained in power, how different America would be today. If a country where they could have remained in power would have been a very different country than the one that, that they were in, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. As I look at it now, yeah. I just, it's like, that's how it now seems clear uh, that, 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 that they didn't, it, it was, a, they didn't quite grasp the system, I think, that they were dealing with. In a I don't way. think and so either. I think, you know, Kenny, 
in a lot of ways was in over his head. And that's not a knock on him. I think any human being in that position would be over their head. Um, but I think he dealt with it, you know, as best he could. And I, I think you're right. I think he learned how the system operated as he was in the middle of it. Right. I think he even, even said once, I think it was about, v, I don't know what it was about Laos or Vietnam. He said, you know, the chickens are coming home to roost and I live in the chicken house or something like that. Yeah. That, I don't know. That sounds a little, that reminds me of the Malcolm X quote, but that's a different. Yeah, no, it's a different, a different Yeah. He definitely that said was that about like, the JFK assassination yeah, though. That's the yeah. funny, the funny thing. He actually explained that once to a crowd. He said, um, or I don't know if it was to a crowd or if maybe it was to, um, to Alex Haley or something, but to whoever it was, it was somebody interviewing him. And he said, people ask me about this. And I tell them when I'm a farm boy. And when you send your chickens out, uh, you know, if you're a farm boy that your chickens come back to roost on your farm, they, they don't go out and roost on someone else's farm. So these chickens that America's sending out all over the world, well, they're going to come back. And then there are yeah. chickens. So I think like, I think that was his way of saying like, I mean, I, I think he understood the assassination. He was very clever. Yeah. about it. No, I, I agree. Uh, and Castro too. That's the that, that that's that to me is like some of the best arguments for a more radical perspective is the Kennedy assassination and how some of these guys like Malcolm X and Castro basically understood right away. What oh it was yeah, about. and New Krama, all of them did. Like everybody, yeah. all these third world guys understood. You know, day one, what happened to Kennedy? Yeah, Sukarno said that he believed uh, that it was he was assassinated because he was going to stop Confrontasi. Yeah, I think they all, yeah, because there's so many things he was involved in that they all felt they contributed or what, whatever he was involved with with them contributed to his death for sure. Yeah, I say that his his assassination was, in social science terms, overdetermined. Yeah. That you can't really say he was killed because of X, although maybe the, the most succinct way is to say he was killed because he wanted to end the Cold War. Um, there, but there's a lot there's a lot with that that, in, that is included in that. <laughs> Another area you write about in the book, which I'm happy you included uh, because it doesn't always get a lot of focus, is the the environment. Um, how did JFK respond to uh, environmental issues, which were, were only just then starting to become kind of a, a, a major national issue? Yeah, so I uh, explain this in my book by differentiating between what I call the Kennedy view and the Malthusian view. So Kennedy very much wanted to see the third world develop. He wanted to see poor people have better lives. You know, the very first executive order he signed doubled the amount of meat available to poor people in society. You know, so he wanted people to have better lives. He wanted them to have cheap energy because he understood to have a robust decentralized economy. You need cheap energy because people need to move their goods. They need to move around, et cetera. So, but he this doesn't mean he didn't care about the environment, right? So he was dealing with kind of what I call the big players, like the military with his nuclear test ban. Because the military is the biggest polluter on the planet, right? So he was trying to cut back on that. He was, there was an issue with um, DDT and pesticides that came up during his presidency. And he responded to that, you know, and he actually sent that to his own um, scientific advisory committee and not to the USDA because it was Rachel Carson wrote a book called silver. Uh, was it silver? Some si spring silent, silent, silent spring. spring. <laughs> yeah. Silent spring. And um, so the USDA was actually thought her book was a public relations program because they, 
problem because they were already kind of in bed with the chemical companies, right? So they didn't want her book to get attention or so, but Kennedy did his own investigation and she, you know, she was called like a quack and not a real scientist because she's not industry funded, but he still took her seriously. Right. And he did his own study and he said, you know, wait a minute, she's right. You know, these pesticides are causing great harm. And Jerome Wiesner, his science advisor actually said they're more harmful to the environment than even the fallout from nuclear testing. You know, so he was trying to do something about that. They came up with a long proposal in mid-63. Now Kennedy died. And so he said he was going to focus on environmental issues in 64. So he probably would have started to tackle some of those things in 64, you know, but he didn't live long enough to do that. So he was responding to what he coined the quote unquote raiders, which is kind of the big companies or the big institutions like the military that are abusing their authority and causing a lot of destruction for the rest of humanity versus the little guy who wants to eat some chicken for lunch. Right. So, um, I compared that in my book to the Malthusian view. So Malthus was someone who's around in the early 1800s. And his view on environmentalism is that there's too many people, they're using too many resources. You know, we can't have all these like filthy people using up valuable resources, right? These poor people or whatever. And a lot of wealthy people gravitated to that Malthusian view to say that, you know what, our resources are limited. You know, only us wealthy people can do certain things. And the rest of you peasants, like, you know, need to cut back on what you're doing because you're taking up our resources. And so I think people really need to think about what sort of environmentalism is pushed today, you know, by um, those in power and those with money and whatnot. Are we pushing the kind of environmentalism that is questioning what our military is doing, that is questioning what our chemical companies are doing? Or are we telling people they need to cut back on their living standards and this is just the way it is? And so I think people really need to question those things um, and think about it because I know environmentalism is the kind of thing where you always think it's good. Yes, I want to protect the environment, but other people will take advantage of that concept to their own benefit. So I think we need to be aware of that, that we're not, you know, we're really thinking about these things and not falling into traps, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. There's uh there's not uh, enough written, I think on, although there's, there, there have been a number of things over the years and maybe this is something people will emphasize more. There's not been as much written about the super elite um, backing of environmentalism as a, yeah. as a concept. And uh, this has been a sort of justification for, uh, underdevelopment in the third world that basically we don't you don't want them to industrialize because this would be you know un uh, this would cause environmental problems. What did Kennedy think about that issue, the conflict between industrialization and development in the third world and the environment? Well, he definitely wanted the third world to develop. Like he was accused of promoting the lust for industrialization and stuff. So he definitely felt resources were unlimited. He said that in multiple speeches, you know, that resources are unlimited if we're wise, you know what I mean, about what we do. So, you know, he definitely in no way, shape or form wanted these countries to remain poor. And he put people first. That was he always put people first above everything else, um, you know, but he did care about the environment. But he just felt there was different ways to approach it. And you can think about it today, like, because I'm really, really, like, I'm a total health nut, and I really care about environmental issues. But the things I care about, like pesticides, or like, 
you know, just putting 5G out there without any testing, despite hundreds of scientists being really concerned about it, you know, the military, all these things that are causing environmental degradation, there's not a peep about any of them, right? So you have to really wonder, is the environment the issue or is control the issue? And the environment is the method by which to get people under control. And I do think there's, this is not to say, I don't think there's massive environmental destruction happening because there absolutely is, but we're not focusing on 99% of it, if that makes sense. And so, yeah. What about the role of technology and uh, human uh, you know, progress in, in terms of the environment and also economic progress. I mean, how did he see those things as related? Um, he definitely thought it was really, um, important and vital. So he definitely believed in human ingenuity, human creativity, um, you know, and which is also why he believed in a free market and decentralized economy, because he felt that fed human creativity versus having like a communist system where maybe, you know, without competition, there's no, there's less ingenuity. Um, so he believed in the power of the human mind to create a better life for everyone. You know what I mean? So, um, so he definitely believed in that. He would never believe in a technocratic system though, you know, cause he said even about like technocracy in one of his speeches that, you know, that not every problem can be solved by a computer. A lot of problems require human intuition you know, human thought, things like that. So he was by no means like a technocrat or anything like that. He just felt that engineering and technology could better people's lives and which it can. Um, but he also understood it could be the opposite. You know, he said in a speech that um, life is extinct on other planets because their scientists were more advanced than ours. So he understood the danger of science that you could, you know, while you can do many great things for humanity, you can also completely destroy humanity with it, right? So he understood the good and the bad um, with all things, right? There's, you can use them for good or you can use them for evil. And, you know, he definitely wanted to use those things for good. Right. And it, it, it seems that he was promoting, uh, he had the idea that, that technology would be, uh, should be, and, and the, the, you could have technological and material progress without destroying the environment Yes. Especially if you make it a priority to come up with better and better technology and really devote human uh, civilization towards organizing uh, itself along these lines. I mean, that was uh, he, and then make it more make it more widely available. Don't just keep it in the hands of a small elite who manage everything, but to like really try to foster technological advancements that would be shared with with human humankind and, and benefit and be focused on issues like the environment at the same time, that we could do all these things at once if we really focus on them. Yeah. And he said in a speech, it's not in my book, but he said that like, there's no excuse left in the 1960s for hunger on this planet. Like the problem is not, we have the ability to rid every, every human being on this planet of hunger. The only problem, the only issue is like organizing and priority. It's not ability, you know, and he right. made that very clear. Yeah. And I mean, today uh, in Peter Phillips' book, he points out, he's a sociologist, and he points out that nine uh, million people die annually from d malnutrition and yeah. uh, starvation. And uh, I've come to the conclusion that this is on purpose, that they actually, it could, because you could fix this with a fraction of like the Pentagon budget or a tax yeah. on billionaires, but that the 
for the for the wealthy, the people that really control the policies of the U.S. and other powerful governments, they see the desperation and destitution of large swaths of the population as better in terms of pro- cr- providing the environment for them to uh, make more money. Uh, I, yeah, just, no, I agree. S- simple as I can say it. Yeah, no, it's true. They push policies that are in their interests, right? And this is the huge j- danger of having top-down policies and having centralized power is that those people are pushing policies to maintain their own power and, you know, keeping... Yeah, they, they're not interested in getting people out of poverty. Yeah, that's uh, something that's hard to get people to always understand is that they say people can say I'm against central planning. I'm against central planning. But every you know economy is going to be planned to some extent. And if you, what we have is a vacuum of law of farsighted, public minded planning. And instead, planning is carried out by private cliques yeah, who manipulate the government. Yes. And Kennedy understood that very well. That's when, that's why he said, you know, I don't want economic power in the hands of the government, but I don't want it in the hands of a few private individuals either. So he understood like, you know, like even though he wanted a free market system, he's like, there needs to be balances and checks on this because we're going to, you know, turn into an oligarchy otherwise. Yeah. We were already there. Yeah. In terms of foreign policy, uh, to what extent did JFK depart from the traditional U.S. policies in Latin America? Okay, so he um, he created the Alliance for Progress. That's one of the first things he did. So he wanted them to be independent. Um, and it was the kind of program where they pr- made their own proposals as to what they were going to do, you know, and... Um, he didn't want them to be reliant on primary exports, you know, so he didn't want them to just be exporters of like one product, but he wanted to, them to develop their own economies, develop their own people, um, become self-sufficient. You know, he was very big on like land distribution, you know, because Bobby said in a speech, you know, if you don't have land ownership, you can't have democracy, right? Cause you have to have a stake in the ground, a stake in your country, right? Otherwise you don't have a say if you don't have a stake in the ground, you know, so he was huge on that. Um, he was okay if they were socialists. Like when he had a meet and greet with Brazilian students, I think in the summer of 62, they asked him about that. And he's like, I don't care if you're socialist. It's your country's choice, what economic policies you want to pursue. The only thing he didn't like is if they were um, affiliated with the Soviet Union. That was the only thing that he said, you know, America would be uncomfortable with. But other than that, he said, you know, it's your choice what you want to do. And he was okay if countries nationalized industries. You know, obviously, he would say in press conferences, you know, if you're going to nationalize, there needs to be fair compensation for that. But he wasn't going out of his way to stop it or anything like that. Um, In some cases, he helped facilitate nationalization. Yeah, he did. Like, I think I included a um, from Juan Bosch's oral history where he said JFK helped him with those kinds of things, you know. Um, privately, you know, so yeah, Bosch I think- was a fascinating guy too. He went on to write a book about, um, about the military industrial complex that was pretty astute. Um, uh, he's a fascinating character. Yeah. So I think, you know, he definitely had very different policies 
towards Latin America than um, most of the U.S. did or most U.S. elites did. You know, the only thing he really um, had in common is he didn't want a connection with the Soviet Union and Latin America. But I think beyond that, he didn't really have much in common with what others wanted. Well, and there were limitations to what he was able to achieve with the Alliance for Progress. And yeah. in Brazil in particular, he he did some things to help Goulart. Like he he helped to, um, I believe he encouraged him to set up a plebiscite that, that led to him assuming the full powers of the presidency. Because when Goulart, Goulart basically took over for a guy who'd been deposed by a right-wing coup before him. And... Um, the military was just not going to allow Goulart to be anything. He was put in more as like a ceremonial thing. Like they didn't mm-hmm. want to full on yeah. be a junta. So they let him be this, have this sort of, he was like the, it was like a constitutional monarchy, except it was the president yeah. who was doing these things. And that was Goulart. Um, but Kennedy and Kennedy was, was not, did not really embrace him or support him so much. Their administration maybe undermined him in some ways which laid set some groundwork for the coup, but I don't think he supported the coup. No. What do you think was, why do you think that Kennedy was on it was either unable or unwilling to do more to help Brazil? Um, I don't know. Like, I think, you know, he was under, I think a lot of pressure within his own administrations. Like he could only go so far. Like he was just, I think pissing a lot of people off in a lot of different areas. So I think, he understood he needed balance. Like even with um, Angola and Portugal, you know, the first couple of years, he was really raw, raw Angolan independence. I think the third year he pulled back from that to some extent, um, partly because of the Zores, partly because, you know, they were screwing him over on the Congo and that he was worried they were going to screw him on the um, nuclear test ban treaty. So I think he was trying to balance so many different things that he couldn't always do what he wanted to do like he because he wasn't king or monarch right and so one of the things i realized studying his presidency is how interrelated everything is like you think okay angola portugal what's that have to do with the nuclear test ban treaty right what does that have to do with the congo but you kind of start to realize how interrelated all these things are and how he can't pursue everything he wants in every place or he's going to get nowhere so he definitely you know compromised and I don't think he always did what he wanted to do. I think he did what he thought was going to overall get him the best result, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, I think in the case of Brazil, if you've ever read um, the Colby uh, and Dennett book, uh, Thy Will Be Done, talks about the massive amounts of investments in the Amazon or in, in Brazil, uh, the Rockefellers. And this was a huge money-making center for them. They just owned a huge amount of the economy and mining and everything else. Um, and so I feel like with Brazil, it was a case where he was running right into the establishment, even though he may not have known it. Like all those guys in his administration, a lot of them were yeah. Rockefeller Brothers Fund guys. And uh, yeah. he, even in his own, setting aside Congress, which is also you know, uh, quite receptive to the, the moneyed classes. Uh, you have his own administration was stacked with people that were uh, pretty much a, a diametrically opposed to what he wanted, especially in terms of their interests and their social milieu and the 
networks that had allowed them to become, you know, successful anyway. These were so intertwined yeah. with uh, Rockefeller and other corporate interests that uh, I, f I feel like Brazil was a case where it, he had so much pushback in this that he he couldn't take a stronger position on it. Yeah, I think he probably didn't have the political power to to take on that that b battle with all the other battles he was taking on. But Jackie did say in her oral history that he would have never supported the military coup there. Um, you know, and she was very clear that there was a massive difference between Johnson and Kennedy in Latin America because her husband, you know, genuinely cared about the people there, whereas Johnson did not. Right. I mean, I, I think it's very telling that when a week after Kennedy is assassinated, Jackie and Robert, they send over, um, yeah. is it William Atwood, right? William Atwood, was it? That William Walton, I think. Or Bill Walton. Yeah, William yeah. Walton. That's right. Uh, they send William Walton over to uh, the Soviet Union and, and they say the quest for peace is going to have to wait because, uh, you know, LBJ is too close to big business. So they they understood that they didn't say LBJ is too close to the military. They understood how these things were yeah. very much related. Uh, I, I think that's very telling that by the end they recognized clearly that this was like one sort of thing that they were up against. Yeah. No, I think so too. Yeah. So another area where Kennedy's policies, and you go into a good bit of detail on the, on this subject in your book, uh, another area where his policies were markedly different were, uh, in regards to Israel, do you think JFK was the least, um, pro Israel president the U S ever had, you know, since Israel was created? Oh, I think for sure. I don't even think it's close. I think because Kennedy was a nationalist, right? He I mean, obviously, he wanted good for all countries, but he, his priority was Americans and the American people. And he even when he met with Golda Meir in December 62, made it clear to her that American interests and Israeli interests are not the same. So I can't imagine any politician telling Israel that today. Right. So he drew a clear line of difference between American and Israeli interests. And he had quite an intense, I think, uh, relationship with Israel during his presidency. There were really four major issues that I go into in my book that contributed to that tension. Um, one is the refugee issue. So he supported UN Resolution 194, which called for the right of return of Palestinians. Now, he understood that practically there, it was never going to be where they would just all go back. But he worked with a guy named Joe Johnson to come up with a proposal where everyone would get the choice. So it would be everyone's choice, their own choice. But they would choose between going back or getting compensation or going to another Arab area and getting compensation. So because it was stacked in favor of compensation and because obviously they'd be going back to Israel and not Palestine, he understood that maybe only 10 percent would go back. And um, but it would still be their choice, which is what he was key, keen on symbolically. It needs to be their choice. Right. So that was one area of tension. Um, another area of tension was his relationship with, or his desire to have good relations with Arab countries, particularly Nasser and Egypt. You know, Kennedy gave a lot of aid to Egypt, um, which caused a lot of tension with Israel. Um, he actually had, they actually tried to cut off his aid. There was a thing called the Gruning Amendment where they tried to cut off his ability to give aid to Egypt at the very end. Um, in you know, so he was very stressed and distressed about that. Um, they were trying to interfere with that. And then there was actually the lobby issue, which not very many people know about. It's not brought up often, but he tried to get the lobby at that time, the American Zionist Council, 
to register as a foreign agent because he felt they were had undue influence influence or were trying to have undue influence on American policy in the Middle East. And he even said, you know, one of the big Zionist financiers tried to buy him off during the election and say, hey, I'll give you these funds if you let me control your Middle East policy. And then the last issue he had is over nuclear weapons. So, you know, I go quite a bit in my book on, you know, how committed Kennedy was to disarmament and how he'd been thinking about it for many years and how concerned he was over nuclear weapons. So obviously the first step towards that, besides the nuclear test ban treaty, is non-proliferation, right? So he was really, really concerned about Israelis developing nuclear weapons, and he wanted thorough and um, frequent inspections, and they really, really pushed back on that. So that was another uh, last source of great tension there. Um, So I think it was a really tense relationship, and I don't you know, I think the presidents today have great relationships with Israel. Um, I don't know if that's for the good for the average American, but. Um, yeah. And what did Kennedy do that led to the resignation of a the fall of a, a government in Israel? The Ben-Gurion? Yeah. So he basically all spring, they went back and forth with these really tense letters. Um, So Ben-Gurion kept deflecting and bringing up other issues. And Kennedy kept saying, hey, I'm asking for inspections. I'm asking for inspections. First, he asked them to start in May. Ben-Gurion kept pushing back. Finally, middle of May, Kennedy gave his first ultimatum. So end of May, Ben-Gurion responds and says, okay, we can do inspections at the end of the year. So Kennedy responds a a week or two later in mid-June and says, no, not the end of the year. I want inspections now, early in the summer. So then he sends and gives a second ultimatum, right? And then he sends it off. And the next day, Ben-Gurion resigns and never accepts receipt of the letter. Um, And if you hear, there's like speeches he gives later where he's still all pro-nuclear weapons. So he, he didn't give up on that, right? So then Kennedy sends the same letter, essentially, to Eshkol. I think he waits impatiently like two weeks for um, Eshkol to kind of get his bearings. And that's about as much patience as Kennedy had. And then, then he sends him the same letter, essentially, and the same ultimatum and says, I want inspections early in the summer. But because Eshkol's new, he's able to kind of push it off for a little while because he's like, I don't know what's going on. I need to figure out. And you know what I mean? Like, he's a new guy and he uses that as his excuse to kind of delay Kennedy. And finally, at the end of August, he says, okay, we can do inspections, but we can't do them right now because of some technicality. We'll do them at the end of the year. But before the reactor goes critical, that was the key thing. Because McCone told Kennedy, if he waits till after the reactor is critical, he can't get the inspections he wants. But, um, you know, as everyone knows, Kennedy didn't make it to the end of the year. And the reactor went critical at the end of the year. And then under Johnson, they... um, they did very like cursory inspections, but they weren't real inspections. And it was after it had already gone critical. And there's actually on the LBJ declassified phone calls, LBJ saying, yeah, Kennedy was really rough on you guys in 1963, but I put an end to all that. Like, I don't, I wasn't, you know, so he's very open about it. Lyndon Johnson, that he basically let them have Demona. I mean, he basically said it, he's on tape of saying it. Yeah. Which is a strange thing to explain on the basis of, superficially who lbj was i mean this big texan senator richest man in the senate even though he was from a humble background um and yet he has this compassion for the struggles of the israeli people or something i I don't it's something is a little strange there yeah i think he got a lot of financing from zionist interests that's probably why he um 
you know, I think Abe Feinberg and other people were very big financiers of the Democratic Party, but they couldn't buy off Kennedy. Um, yeah. They could easily I mean, that, buy off that's the, that That's the ironic thing is that he was a the richest of the presidents that we've had, but the the result is that he's actually the one who's less corruptible. I mean, the same with FDR, yeah. really. That it, that is not that I would be a cheerleader for the super rich running everything. It's just they already basically do run everything. It's just if you have somebody who is already has enough money and and so on that they don't they're not really motivated in that direct way by getting more money and power, then it gives them some independence rather. And they may, I mean, you can almost make an argument that even for ego purposes, you'd want to be a good leader as a rich person because you've already gotten a lot of money. So wouldn't you want the people to also like, you know, love you and stuff. I mean, there's a lot of ways you could look at this, but it's like, it's a, that's a fascinating part of it. I think. Yeah, no, I think so too. Cause you think like, Oh, if this poor person runs for office, they're going to be more understanding if they have if a poor person has money to run for office, they've been bought and owned, right? So, but if a rich person runs for office, yeah, maybe they'll relate less, but they'll be less owned. So you know what I mean? And I think the other thing about Kennedy is even though he grew up wealthy, he was in and out of hospitals and in and out of doctor's offices his whole life. He was sick a lot. So I think he understood struggle and suffering and pain that maybe a lot of wealthy people don't understand. So even even though it wasn't financial pain, he understood suffering. And I think he could relate to people in that way. Yeah, it's different in other countries. I mean, in Peru, they just overthrew a leader who was a school teacher and not a wealthy person. He was an indigenous Indian and so on. Uh, and so it I don't think it I don't think the way that it works out in the US always does here. But in the US, most of these guys that come from humble backgrounds, the more you learn, you realize that it's like they were they're they're they owe that when they come when you come up that way you owe you basically yeah. prove to people who sponsor you in the past what kind of person you are and then they see you as somebody who's controllable like that that's like harry truman fits that mold lbj yeah. nick nixon uh to although nixon had some democratic lowercase yeah. d democratic uh inclinations um jimmy carter similar reagan himself general electric and all that you know yeah uh bill clinton barack obama all these guys that come from more humble origins end up being you know people that in retrospect you see oh yeah well they were backed by this person and that person and this entity and so on and then yeah now we see why they did what they did (laughs) very true so with jfk he had all these plans for wanting to reorient the United States in a, in a world historic way. He wanted to use the power uh, of the, of the United States in, in, in ways that would allow for history making uh, in what he thought were positive ways, but he was not able to do that. And I think that we have to say he miscalculated because it wasn't part of his plan to be assassinated in broad daylight on, in, uh, in Dallas at high noon. So what mistakes do you think were the most consequential uh, when we look at the Kennedy presidency? So I think you have to start with the Bay of Pigs, right? Because that was obviously a disaster, um, you know, and I think Operation Mongoose after that, I think was also a disaster. And I think uh, a lot of people portray Kennedy as your typical imperialist because of that, because of Bay of Pigs and Mongoose. 
But I think people have to understand, and he talked about in a speech in 19, or in a, I think a TV interview in 1960, you know, he said like Algeria needs to be independent from France, like Cuba needs to be independent from the Soviet Union. So in his mind, the issue was the relationship with the Soviet Union. It's not that he wanted to interfere in Cuba, but I think he did have a legitimate security concern there, you know, because he was worried. Even I think Bobby said to him at some point, if we don't do something about this, they're going to put missiles in Cuba, you know, and he ended up being right. And so I think people say we had the Cuban Missile Crisis because of the Bay of Pigs. And while I think that may have, may have given Khrushchev political cover, I don't think Khrushchev gave a crap about the Cuban people. I think he did it maybe to protect the Soviet Union, you know, against a poss- possible first strike. And also to, um, as Kennedy thought, to kind of one-up him and have negotiating power on Berlin and stuff like that. So I think that's the reason, you know, Khrushchev put missiles in there. Um but nevertheless, obviously, the Bay of Pigs should never have happened and neither Mongoose. But I think another reason I think he approved Mongoose is I think in I go into like Jackie talking about his reaction to the Bay of Pigs. I think he felt tremendous guilt to the exile community and a tremendous responsibility for what happened to them in the Bay of Pigs. So he didn't want to just completely abandon them either, if that makes sense. Um and also pressure, obviously, like he's pressured to do something about Cuba, political pressure, administration pressure, like, et cetera. So I think all of that kind of combined to him going along with it. Um, and so people view him as an imperialist, but I think they need to understand the context of those decisions. And I think the other really bad thing he did is increased advisors in Vietnam. But I think, again, people need to understand the context of that bad decision, right? He was being massively pressured to send massive amounts of combat troops and he had already given up Laos. He had already given up the Bay of Pigs. And, you know, and he even said, like, I can't politically defend another loss to the communists right now. You know, but three months later, he sends Galbraith up there and says, write a report about how bad an idea this is. So I don't think he was ever keen on it, but I think he compromised. He kind of realized, you know, what he was dealing with. And, you know, so maybe he made decisions that I'm not even sure he himself was that fond of. But um I think, you know, he made them for whatever reason he did. I think they were mistakes. Um, And I think he realized with time that they were mistakes. Um, And he tried to undo those mistakes, you know. Um, So, but I think those would be like his biggest faults um, would would be those three things. Yeah, I I try, I I think about his position and it's really amazing uh, in in terms of the sheer amount of, momentous events that unfold during those the short amount of time that he's in office and then the fact that he is surrounded by enemies i mean it's the joint chiefs are i mean he wants to get he tries to get them to make a movie he wants to put the the his friends in hollywood to make a movie based on a coup a military coup to serve as a warning for the public okay that's how much he is uh worried about his military brass the CIA, he says he wants to smash him into a thousand pieces and scatter him to the winds. And he tells people like De Gaulle and Sukarno, or he tells De Gaulle this. He says, uh, I, I don't, I'm not trying to kill you, but the CIA might be, uh, they're kind of out of control. And Sukarno later says something like that, uh, echoes that later on, that like, yeah. why are you doing, why were they doing this? Or they're, they're trying to do all these operations that Kennedy doesn't know about. I think he said that to one of the ambassadors. Uh, from the U.S. at the time, so there's the, there's the CIA is obviously really out of control. 
the um the big business community hates him you know fortune magazine as writing these negative you know beware the eyes of april uh he said all businessmen are sons of bitches uh (laughs) according that's what my dad said and I, i see he's right um he has that quote where it's like i asked you years ago you know what you would do for your country we got the answer from the steel companies Okay, like he actually just says this, like you guys are like, you know, unpatriotic. You're basically traitors. I mean, this is so the big business. He's going right at Wall Street. They go at his brother. They'd gone after the mob in ways that were unprecedented. Nobody did that before or since. As much as people say that his father was mobbed up in really serious ways, I, I, my understanding is that a lot of those core allegations are kind of uh, not not very well sourced. Yeah. So it's it's not so clear cut. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's really incredible when you think about how many enemies he had. And I think somebody, I don't know, the mobsters or something said, someone's going to put a hit on this guy. And the best thing is no one will ever know who did it because everybody hates him. Like he, you know what I mean? Like it just, he has so many enemies, like from every angle you can imagine, like he pissed everybody off. And, you know, you really, I think, at least for me, you like studying his presidency, like as you study it more and more, you really begin to develop a sympathy for him and like the situation he was in, because I don't know if there is any way out of that situation other than selling your soul or giving up your life, you know, and he gave up his life. Yeah. I mean, I, I, all this, the choices that he made to be able to get into that position, you can understand it. Um, because you have to make these compromises in a pretty corrupt system, but they, those compromises also made it, uh, he, he's, they set in motion things that were going to make it hard for him. I mean, for example, you've got Charles Dillon is the treasury secretary. Yeah. Douglas this, Dillon, yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, like, Oh, Douglas Dillon, right. Yeah. Charles, I think Charles may oh, have been, there may have been, been another there. guy. Okay. No, I think it's Oh, Douglas Dillon. Doug okay. is the guy. And then there's, there may be another one named Charles, but I, or I could yeah. be wrong with that. But oh, Douglas Dillon, you're right. Yeah. He's the treasury secretary, but his family is Dillon Reed Investment Bank. These are like aristocrats, wasps going back, you know, like Kennedy is new money. This is like old yeah. money. And uh, they, he was a guy who was on President Eisenhower's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board, where he recommended getting rid of Lumumba, for example, um, he, he was just, an, you know, a guy who was totally in line with this oligarchic, um, wall street empire around the world. And it was, it was Dylan Reed bankers, specifically, uh, Forrestal and Eberstadt, a guy named Ferdinand Eberstadt. They were two of the main people behind arguing for the creation of the CIA. So the CIA was created by these guys to act as their secret police yeah. And these are the people like, oh, Douglas Dillon is in charge of Kennedy's security. He's at the Secret Service. Yeah. He's running the Secret Service. Um, and the so it, it, it's all all of these things are I think what Kennedy's the Kennedys didn't realize is how much it wasn't just that they had some enemies over here and some enemies over there and some you know some enemies in the Pentagon and in the CIA and on Wall Street and the mob. Uh it's and this this aristocracy, you know, I've got people yeah. in this aristocracy that are actually in charge of my security, etc. But what he didn't grasp so much, because it's almost too much for someone to wrap their mind around, is how much all these forces are interrelated. Yeah. And so they're not just disparate forces against him; they're basically parts and beneficiaries of this 
imperialist uh, political economy that uh, he was messing with. I mean, when he's talking about ending the Cold War and he's talking about putting mobsters and, you know, actually jailing the mob and, and, and so on. He's really he's going right at the uh, the heart of the power uh, and wealth of the richest, most powerful people uh, in human history, essentially. Yeah, I think he maybe didn't grasp it at all, went up the same chain, so to speak, line of command, ultimately. Like, maybe not official lines of command, but unofficial lines of command. Yeah. I mean, there's the CIA. People know how the CIA got in, sort of in bed with the mafia and so on. But we don't think about how organized crime was intertwined with these capitalists uh, and corporate interests for, you know, most of modern U.S. history. It's like this is the mob had a relationship with finance and so on and and the political machines in different places in the U.S. Like there's a whole this is what Peter Dow Scott calls the deep political system of the U.S., and in my, I write about this as kind of evolving into when you get the CIA created and it becomes international and becomes intertwined with the state, it becomes more of like a, you'd call it the deep state. It's not really a Trump term. It's actually a, yeah. a leftist term of uh, anti-democratic governance. But they, they, it, but they were trying to learn all this on the fly and they just, they couldn't, they, they didn't, yeah. they couldn't do it because nobody was saying this at the time. Nobody was even, the, the most radical people the person who was out there saying this maybe in a way that was most relevant was C. Wright Mills writing in the fifties. Uh, and I think he was dead on, but even he it had, it had already gone farther than Mills knew. And it was just a monster. This, this system was just a beast. Yeah, no, I think Kennedy was absolutely in over his head. Like he was just, it was just coming at him from every angle. And he wouldn't have gotten there, I mean, by his calculations, and I think there's good reason to believe it, he wouldn't have gotten there if he had ma- hadn't made all those compromises with people in the establishment and so on. I mean, he had to be vetted to some degree uh, by these forces, or he would have had a really, it would have been about impossible, I think, to even get the presidency. So he, he really, and he, he on in the campaign against Nixon, he speaks about the missile gap and the and why they're not doing more against Cuba. I feel like that sort of rhetorically makes him have to be more hawkish as a, as a president. Like yeah. he's already kind of thrown that gauntlet down in yeah. a way, which was stupid in retrospect, but yet maybe he might not have been able to win if he didn't do that. So yeah, it's, 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 it's really something. So why do you think that there's uh, still all these years later, it's almost 60 years later after his assassination. Why do you think there's still so much interest in the history of the Kennedy administration? I think because people deep down understand something is wrong with America. Like I understood that. I didn't, it was subconscious in a lot of ways, you know, like people don't really know what is wrong. They don't know why their country is their way there is, but they know something is not right. And so I think for a lot of people, like for me, people want to go back to, well, when was it right? Right. So I think that's why Kennedy still holds so much interest today because people want, it's nostalgic. It's like, they want to go back to that innocence. You know what I mean? They want to understand what happened to their country. And if you want to understand what happened to your country, you have to start with the guy that was murdered, right? That's because it was a coup. It was a coup. So if you want to understand who runs America, you have to understand the coup that got rid of Kennedy. And that's, if you can't understand America, if you don't understand Kennedy, 
And I think whether people realize that or not, I think on sub some subconscious level, they do, or a lot of people do, even if it's not conscious. Yeah, you mentioned in your book a statistic, which I don't know if I had for, I heard this before or forgotten it or what, uh, or if I'd never heard it, but it's actually really fundamental and, and, and relevant. You point out that JFK had the highest average approval rating uh, in the history of uh, the, the polling on this. And uh, do you think that's a coincidence that what do you think is the relationship between his fate and his popularity, I guess, is a question. Uh, I think that's so very, very correlated. <laughs> I think it's one to one or whatever. The, yeah, it's definitely correlated, right? Like he is obvious he was serving the public, you know, and he wasn't serving oligarchs and his approval rating bears that and his assassination bears the same, I think. I mean, and that is such a damning indictment of our system, if you look at it honestly, because it's not just like the U.S. pretends to be democratic sometimes, but like there's really perhaps something undemocratic about the actual regime. It's that the U.S. brands itself as the champion of democracy. They make this its yeah. uh, its chief selling point and point of legitimation for everything it does all around the world. But when it comes down to it, they are as anti-democratic as you could be. They would actually kill any person who who operated as an actual Democrat, with the yes. lowercase c. <laughs> no, I agree. I agree 100%. And I think the other statistic is trust in government. You know, it was over 70% when Kennedy was in office, and now it's like 24%. Yeah. So, and it starts to go down in 64. Yeah. People, people attribute that to Vietnam, but it actually starts to go down in 64, which isn't the year that we get into the Vietnam War. Uh, it's the year that the Warren Report comes out. Yeah, which is, I think, astounding. <laughs> so it's because that, and that's what's fascinating about it when you can talk about the assassination, is that the public never accepted it. A majority of the public never accepted it, um, even with all the propaganda. Uh, it got down to single digits in the '70s, which is probably when people were paying the most attention to it. Uh, and um, this is. Uh, the, but and the elites also never accepted it. We know that LBJ, Nixon, RFK, uh, Gerald Ford, even yeah. uh, appa apparently Jimmy Carter as well. Even Reagan at one point, he had to come up with his own version of it, and he said it was probably his Soviet connections. So like none of the elites, you know, Jackie. We know what Jackie yeah. thought. Um, uh, it, the elites and the public don't believe it. And yet the media and the public pronouncements of officials are always, you know, on the, are, are almost always on the side of, you know, Oswald did it. Yeah. It kind of just shows you how powerless people are in a way, because everybody believes a, and the media says B and B is still the official yeah. reality, so to speak. And even the elites who are human beings will actually speak about it sometimes and tell the truth about yeah. it in their own way, or at least say like it had to have been something else. My friend worked for a congressman who's not, who's a conservative Democrat. Mm -hmm. And he asked him about it once. He's an older guy. So he would remember the assassination. Uh, he would have said, there has to be more to it than, than that. There has to be more to the story. Yeah. than that." So everybody knows this, but then you, when you think about the public and then the elites all recognize that something is very rotten there then it really does get into a system. It's a systemic thing where 
I mean, obviously, it wasn't a, an a abstract system that killed Kennedy. Like, you have to have humans plotting yeah. it and doing it and carrying it out and deciding to cover it up and et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it, re, it reflects a, a, a system it, 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 because it's, that's, it's not the people at the top who, are, who buy the official story and it's not the public. It's something else. Yeah. And that's a, little, that's a little frightening. No, that's very true. Well, um, I am going to put links to your book in the show notes. And I uh, there's I listened to the audiobook version of it, which you read, and I, I enjoyed that. I, I found it to be uh, uh, it was informative. Yeah, I'm, I'm really steeped in this. So I know a lot of the material. I know a lot of the books that you drew from. But I, I that even still, I enjoy I really enjoyed listening to it. And it was the fact that you are not an academic and not even a, a, a someone who is a, a, you know particularly focused on political theory and, and and so on who comes at it from a you know academic um, or theoretical or polemical even point of view that that you the way you present it it's all, it's very touching and very well done so uh, I, I really appreciate your book thank you and uh, thank you for speaking with us today. I'm really happy that we were able to bring Monica Wiesack on American Exception to talk about America's last president, what the world lost when it lost John F. Kennedy. Some of you might pick up on the fact that Monica is not an avowed or overt leftist, and thus she is not especially preoccupied with political theory and such. As I tried to mention or allude to, I myself would frame differently the general thrust of what JFK was doing uh, compared to Monica's book. In particular, I think her book de-emphasizes all the dumb Cold War things that JFK and his administration said and did. However, I also think that her book downplays how bad and rotten the whole U.S. establishment is and how insane JFK's political situation was. I'll try to elaborate on here. JFK was trying to keep the world from getting blown up while placating the Wall Street oligarchy that had ginned up this entire Cold War to serve as a mythical cover story for their war on the whole world. This oligarchy had agents in high positions throughout JFK's administration and were dominant in media and the whole of society in general. JFK had the opposing party, the Republicans, which was firmly pro-big business. He also had to contend with the Pentagon and the CIA, which were deadly, well-funded, and networked with the class of Wall Street oligarchs who gave them so much power as the elites of the U.S. chose to go for a global empire post-World War II. JFK also had to deal with his own party, which had a large, deranged, white supremacist, segregationist faction that JFK could not write off completely, even as... JFK was writing the Civil Rights Act to end segregation. So I believe that in the end, by downplaying or de-emphasizing these two countervailing aspects of the JFK story, Monica Wiesack basically gets the story about right. As for someone writing about these issues, despite not having a background in history, social science, or journalism, I really admire her for doing this. 
Longtime listeners may have heard me say that given the power and despotism of the U.S. regime, the opportunity to learn and speak the truth as best we can is the only democracy we have left until conditions change. I believe that America's last president is a testament to those aspirations for actual democracy. Monica not only provides a useful resource which details JFK's vision, but the book is also a heartening read. It is inspiring for me to see how a normal person with a full-time job could take the time to do so much research and writing on a subject like this. The book, and this includes her reading of it for the audiobook version, as a whole, uh, it is a touching and compelling tribute to JFK, America's most popular post-World War II president before he was gunned down by snipers at the age of 46 after serving less than three years of his term. He was just one mortal man, but this was, in terms of its motives and impact, one of the great and monumental crimes of human history. And so, we cannot let it slip from memory. We have to keep minding the darkness. <laughs> 